Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week we'll be talking to John Colapinto, an award-winning staff writer at The New Yorker, who's written a book about the human voice, inspired by his experience of losing his own voice. And later for our wordplay quiz, we're bringing on a special guest, chart analyst and pop critic Chris Malamphy, who writes the series Why Is This Song Number One for Slate and hosts the Hit Parade podcast. So, Nicole, I'm not sure how much time you have these days for uh, binge-watching new shows, but have you checked out Squid Game, this uh, Korean survival drama series that's been such a big hit on Netflix? I'm not sure it's for me, but I have been hearing a lot about it. Like, I saw that Squid Game is so popular worldwide, it's inspiring people to learn Korean. Our friends at Duolingo report that they've seen a 40% spike in new Korean learners in the U.S. compared to this time last year. Probably not all Squid Game, maybe some BTS, but certainly an increase. (laughs) Some combination of those things, yeah. I mean, I haven't gotten through all nine episodes of Squid Game yet, but it is really compelling to watch. And there are some interesting linguistic issues that have come out of the show also. Some viewers who speak Korean have complained about the English translations of the dialogue that are available on Netflix. Young Mi Meyer, who's a comedian and co-host of the podcast Feeling Asian, vented about this on TikTok recently in a video that's racked up more than 10 million views. Hi, everyone. I just watched Squid Game, and I'm fluent in Korean, and I had the English subtitles on, and I noticed that um, you're missing so much from the English uh, subtitles. Here I tweeted... Uh, Young Mi Meyer posted a follow-up video where she acknowledged that most of the bad translations she was talking about were actually from the English closed captioning of the dubbed version, which is what you get if you choose English CC in the subtitle options from Netflix. So if you're watching Squid Game with subtitles... Don't pick that option. Don't pick English CC, just the regular English subtitles, which are much better. But even those subtitles pose some thorny translation problems. Right. I saw some discussion about how the English subtitles handle Korean honorifics. Honorifics are a good example of how hard it is to translate culturally bound terms because there's not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence between different languages. Yeah, so in Squid Game, there's a character named Han Minya who's one of the contestants in this deathmatch survival game. And she often addresses her fellow contestants with the honorifics oppa and unni. And you could translate those as elder brother and elder sister. Uh, Like a lot of Asian languages, Korean uses kinship terms as honorifics that can be used to address others outside of the family to convey respect or familiarity. But in Korean, it's more complicated because there's actually different terms of address used if the speaker is male or female. So oppa and unni, those get used by female speakers like Minya in the Squid Game. So in that clip, you can hear Minya address a man as oppa. But in the English subtitles, it says, hey, babe. And uh, in another scene, the subtitle translates oppa as old man. So babe, old man. Korean speakers on Twitter have pointed out that neither of those translations really hits the mark for oppa. Another option would have been to just leave oppa untranslated in the subtitles and let English-speaking viewers figure out how the honorifics work from the context. And I have a feeling a lot of people are already somewhat familiar with oppa from the Korean smash hit song uh, from 2012 by Sai, Gangnam Style. Oppa Gangnam Style. 
Gangnam Style. Yes, who could forget? <laughs> Gangnam Style took us over there for a while. And in that catchy refrain, Sai sings Opan Gangnam Style, where he's referring to himself in the third person as Oppa, suggesting that he wants a sexy lady to call him by the honorific Oppa, which is something a woman might use when addressing an older boyfriend. And coincidentally enough, the Oxford English Dictionary has just added the word Oppa in its latest quarterly update online, along with 25 other words derived from Korean. So let's see how the OED defines Oppa. Quote, in Korean-speaking contexts, a girl's or woman's elder brother, also a respectful form of address or term of endearment, and an extended use with reference to an older male friend or boyfriend. And then there's a second definition that might also be relevant for Sai and Gangnam Style, quote, an attractive South Korean man, especially a famous or popular actor or singer. Yeah, there's no easy way to boil all of that down into one English translation equivalent. But it's interesting that the OED has included all of these Korean-derived words in their latest update. And there's a lot of food terms, as you might expect. Things like bulgogi, which is defined as a dish of thin slices of beef or pork, which are marinated, then grilled or stir-fried. Mm, now I'm hungry. Okay, and speaking of food, there's also mukbang, which is a video, especially one that is live-streamed, that features a person eating a large quantity of food and talking to the audience. In their announcement of the update, the OED pointed to the rise of international interest in South Korean pop culture. So notably, there was Bang Joon-ho's movie Parasite, which was the first non-English language film to win the Oscar for Best Picture. And of course, the popularity and ubiquity of K-pop acts like BTS. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. The OED actually includes two different terms to refer to this whole 21st century surge in popularity. So there's Korean wave. And there's also the equivalent expression in Korean, which gets also used in English. And that term is Hallyu, uh, spelled or transliterated as H-A-L-L-Y-U. So both of those terms are in the OED, OED now. So Hallyu, even though it comes from Korean, it's now getting used in English when talking about Korean pop culture. So it even shows up in phrases like Hallyu craze, Hallyu fan, Hallyu star. Well, if Squid Game is any indication, the Korean wave won't be slowing down anytime soon. And maybe we can all learn some more about Korean language and culture in the process. I might have, might have been persuaded to finally check out Squid Game. You should, you should. <laughs> Stay with us after the break when we'll be talking to John Colapento about his new book, This is the Voice. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is John Colapinto, a journalist and staff writer for The New Yorker and author of several books, including his latest, This is the Voice. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So, John, when we first started Spectacular Vernacular, I mentioned to Ben that I was reading your book and that we should try to get you on the show. So I'm really glad it's finally happening. I'm a linguist who studies variation in the properties of the voice itself, so it was interesting to hear you talk about the voice from your perspective as a journalist. And you've written about a really wide variety of topics in your career, so what inspired you to write about the human voice? You know, it was really a, a vocal injury that I sustained 20 years ago got me kind of initially aware that the voice was something that we take for granted. 
Um, just the little bit of a rasp that I suddenly had was making me sound like a different sort of person over the phone. I realized um, it was making my voice tired and it was, it was very hard for me to be heard in loud restaurants. And I was sort of withdrawing from, from, I don't know, society a little bit because of it. All of this actually, though, was pointed out to me by a, uh, a voice surgeon that I wrote a story about for The New Yorker um, some years after my, my injury. And he's the guy that saved Adele's career by removing a polyp from her vocal cord. And when he spoke about that, it sort of it, it confirmed for me that my voice was something that I had completely taken for granted, didn't understand how much it's communicating and then actually, to be honest, the book itself um, was suggested to me by Simon & Schuster. Uh, the, the executive editor there said, could you ever expand that voice story on the vocal surgeon into a book? And you know, as a linguist, that the answer is, of course, no. It's way too big a topic. Voices are language, they're singing, they're accents. I mean, my God, it was, but then I just couldn't give up the idea. It just sort of stubbornly stayed in my mind until I wrestled it to the ground. If I did. Yeah, I think you did. And I, this was also, I was, didn't know that when I picked up the book, I just said, oh, somebody's written about the voice and I'm a linguist. Let me open it. But I had my second vocal surgery, a nodule removal in this past summer. And I first had that surgery when I was 21 years old. I've been dealing with the same kind of like, you know, trauma to my voice all this time and losing my voice. When I was 20, I sounded like a 75-year-old smoker. Yes. Um, and and I, had, I had had that since I was in high school. And I, I never made the connection that maybe that was why I was interested in phonetics and linguistics. But once you start to kind of learn about the voice, which is, as you say, something that people don't think about much, I think it really sucks you in because you're you're very affected in all of the aspects of how you interact in everyday life. And it's just fascinating, honestly. Yes. I mean, what, what I realized was to write a coherent book or at least a halfway readable one, I had to find something that synthesized all the material because otherwise it would just be scattershot stuff thrown at a wall. And there's, there's nothing worse than trying to read a book that's just like, oh, wow moments page to page because nothing is really sustaining you narratively, I guess. And, you know, the, the realization for me was that really our voices are what took us to the top of the food chain, as I put it in the book. You know, it was we because we can articulate our thoughts through these astonishingly fast and precise movements of our throat and mouth and, and our breathing apparatus, we're able to sh conspire, collaborate, share ideas with others of our species, which enabled us to outsmart, outwit, and have for dinner all of those creatures that would have had us for dinner that run faster and so on and so forth. So I realized that, that linguists, I hate to say this, Nicole, but uh, they were sort of slighting, uh, in my opinion, I mean, sort of the mainstream of, of linguistic studies since the 1950s with Noam Chomsky seemed to me to be slighting the voice. I, I think that's less true now, perhaps, but um, I felt like I needed to speak up and say, wait a second, listen to this voice of mine. We did come to the party late. Phonetics, which is the area of linguistics that studies the sort of physical properties of the voice, wasn't really integrated into mainstream linguistics until the 80s, 90s. So it definitely was late to the party. But I agree with you. <laughs> uh, OK, cool. And as a typical journalist, like I pretended you guys weren't up to speed yet. It was like, let me just completely falsify this. No, no. I'm, OK, but Chom Chomsky is still so damn important, you know, and, and, and I think that 
I guess that point about the centrality of the acoustic signal to our success as a species feels like something I hadn't seen uh, said. Um, so I, I wanted to bring something maybe slightly new to the to the party. So in the book, you you discuss a whole wide variety of, of voice related topics. So everything from child language acquisition to you know the evolution of the human vocal tract. What surprised you the most about just you know the basics of how humans can do language with the voice? Boy, I, you know, I guess I would actually say that language acquisition had to be a major astonishment for me because we say language acquisition, but it's really speech acquisition as well. So it's the it's the ability to uh, hear. Uh, so it's all of these physical mechanisms. You know, we hear so much in linguistics about the brain and the way it's computing language, that idea that it's this very abstract, difficult to understand thing happening in the brain, which it absolutely is. But none of it would be discussable in any sense of that term if we couldn't speak and if we couldn't, you know, process language through the ears and then articulate it through these astounding things that I'm currently doing, which is hitting precise targets within my mouth uh, with the tip of my tongue or the back of my tongue or just how I arch it for a vowel and so on. Incredibly fast movements of the lips. All of this coordinated with how I'm pushing air up from, from my, uh, w- with my diaphragm from my lungs. So it was the idea that all of those systems in their coordination, motor, motor coordination, hearing, is actually sculpting a brain that is specified for the particular language I speak. In other words, I hear certain sounds. As an English speaker, I hear a difference between r and l. A Japanese native speaker won't be hearing that as a baby, both in the womb and after born, after that she's born. So I really feel as if the idea that we are forming neural connections within the brain for language, but also motor connections through that move this apparatus that are particular to our language and is was stunning to me. It made the voice into something that was so comprehensive of our of our brains and bodies, um, you know, and, and literally the voice being that was just wonderful to me. Yeah, and another thing you write about is how the voice operates in society, which is really interesting. Um, you especially talk about how variation in pronunciation has changed over time. And you point out that pronunciation differences also have typically been correlated with class, with social class, perhaps especially in the Anglophone world. Could you tell us a bit about uh, what you learned about the BBC's advisory committee, now defunct, I guess, and uh, what that says about our expectations about, for instance, how journalists should sound? Yeah, it, well, I mean, if I can go back on my other answer, this was the most astounding thing I learned. No, I <laughs> love the fact that when the BBC started in the 1920s, it was all of a sudden a single human voice was being broadcast across an, an entire country. So it was the first time that you could have a single human voice influencing how other people talk. So the idea was literally within the BBC, the feeling was that, hey, we could actually help unify this country. Now, you can see this as an imposition of like a ruling class over you know, a working class country that had these working class Cockney accents. And the BBC was exclusively these Oxford and Cambridge accented voices, you know, these very posh voices. 
Now, and it can seem a little sinister and, and, and kind of like a power play. And, and, but I think that at heart, there was sort of this hope. There was this understanding within the country that voices were dividing the country. You know, I said that voices brought us together as a species to succeed. But the, the great paradox is that they also divide us because we sound different from each other. And that stimulates parts of the brain for threat. So the BBC decided, well, you know, we can actually help solve this a little bit by by really policing the accents that we put on the air. So we will choose people that have these perfect accents. We will have an advisory committee that sort of discusses how to pronounce certain words that are a little bit difficult. You know, uh, do you say canine or canine? Uh, George Bernard Shaw, the author of Pygmalion, well, you know, ob- obviously all about accents, was on the advisory committee. Um, and so this was this this effort to to socially engineer a, a, a sort of, you know, one accent across a country. It didn't work at all for the very reason that we were just talking about. We actually lay down our pronunciations as babies and they become relatively hardwired. It's very hard, hard to change an accent in a plausible way that will trick native speakers of that accent. So, you know, A, you have adults that listen to the radio not being changed by this this posh accent that was coming through because the the brain has already been wired and then you but then another thrilling thing i learned was that even babies that are subjected to endless voice over media they also electronic media they also don't acquire the accent because accents are learned in a feedback loop you've got to be responding and then the you know the voice has to respond to the noise you made and it's a playful back and forth we call it babbling it's all that cute goo goo gaga stuff that that happens so in other words voices wonderfully are weirdly impervious to electronic intervention or they were until lately uh you know really to to speak, we really need to be playing with other voices in real time. Yeah, I love that. People ask all the time, like, is the internet changing the language? I'm like, well, maybe some words, but fundamentally, we acquire language from the community and even, you know, as adults. Um, so I'm a sociolinguist. So I would add to your your point about it being adults have their brains formed and sort of their more rigid language structure kind of already in place. So it's harder for them to change. That's for sure true. But also uh, the way that people use variation is part of what they do with their identity. So not everybody would want to sound like the BBC, even if it is prestigious, right? There's a social rejection. So I was, yeah, I was really interested in your chapters about the voice and the expectations of it, not only varying by class, but also gender and race. And um, in particular, uh, you contrast Darwin's claim that uh, even language itself would be subject to natural selection. But with the reality of language and dialect diversity that we see now, you know, that kind of doesn't seem to be the case. So having done this research yourself as a journalist, what do you think that people still get wrong about variation in the voice? Boy, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it jumps to mind immediately the, the incredible controversy around uh, American vernacular, African-American vernacular English. Some people called it a bonics back in the day, black English. You hear all these, these terminologies for it. That's also my jam, by the way. We're like uh, in my world here. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this stuff was just astounding to read. It was just too fascinating for words. One of the things that people would say about black English was 
you would get your Tucker Carlson's not to name anybody in particular saying, you know, oh my God, they still say acts, even though they hear on the radio and television, they're constantly bombarded with the right way to say ask. Well, there's a few problems in there. There's no right way to say ask, or if you ask or ask Chaucer, it, you know, the, the poet from 500 years ago, or however long ago it was, he would say acts. You know, we, we know from Shakespeare uh, that at certain times he would actually spell it that way, and perhaps they said. So, in other words, there's no right way to say any English or Japanese word. I mean, these things are contingent on culture, upbringing. And to go back to what we were saying about the fact that voices, pronunciations, accents are formed in playful back and forth feed loop, you know, feedback loop communication with parents and other caregivers, you know, African-American kids or whoever you want to talk about, Asian kids, they're not going to be learning their their speech patterns and, and accent from the radio or TV. I mean, maybe certain small things are picked up, I don't know, but it, they're in the bath of language with loved ones and friends in their neighborhood or whatever. So if, if certain pronunciations um, and grammatical things are learned, um, you know, in childhood, you can't expect those easily to be changed. And indeed, I, mean, I guess my feeling is, all of that should be celebrated and people should should wise up. You're preaching to the pro-language variation choir, I think, at least with me and Ben and hopefully to our listeners. But yeah, once you start to take these things apart, these kind of prescriptions, they, they don't really hold up to scrutiny. I was also really surprised by your section on the voice and leadership and how it can be used um, alongside rhetorical devices for persuasion. And you offer a lot of examples of great orators throughout history, including more recent ones like Obama. But are there any current or emerging figures that you think are especially effective vocally? Wow, that are especially effective vocally. Anyone that rises to the top um, of, of a highly competitive field like, uh, let's say, the presidency, so I'm talking now about Joe Biden, who you would never in a million years uh, single out as a great orator. You know, you would say, well, first of all, he's got that stutter, which he talked about. And he and there are hesitations in his speech where he's working around that. You know, he can sound kind of grandfatherly now. If you go into YouTube and look at some stuff when he was uh, questioning people on on Senate committees and so on, and you see the incredible range of stuff that he can do with his voice. He can go into anger mode. He can go into threat mode. He can go into soft and mollifying mode. The election that he just won so decisively was, was one with great oratorical skill, in my opinion. He decided to partly rope-a-dope Trump, who was yelling and screaming, he decided to do a friendly, quiet, always calming voice. He realized this was not just a country on the brink. It was a world on the brink. We had Brexit. We had all of this rise of authoritarianism in other parts of the world. And I feel that Joe Biden stepped forward and decided um, that he needed to calm the whole room down. And I think he is doing something verbally, vocally at all times that is calculated and very, very smart. But you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily single it out. Someone like Obama, of course, was doing something so extraordinary just because 
you, the, the articulateness, what's going on in his brain in the way of assembling ideas, organizing them, the depth of knowledge that he has um, of history and law and so on, the Constitution having taught it. When he would give a speech, he could somehow bring all of that to bear along with the musicality, the sort of crescendos and the diminuendos that really fine orators use uh, Cicero and so on talked about this, but all of it done in a way that seems supernatural, uh, highly natural. You, know, you don't want someone that sounds like they're doing some kind of old fashioned. Somehow Obama remained conversational. But who else today? Boy, I don't know. So many. I mean, the voices are just so fascinating. Uh, it's funny. I wonder how what I make of AOC's voice, which is very, very specific. You know, it's got a very. You know, she's just tough. She's not uh, quiet. She's forceful. Uh, she will not be stopped. You know, she will speak up no matter how much she's attacked, ridiculed. So I, I enjoy hearing her speak always for on that level of voice quality and what she does with it. I mean, I guess the women now are so interesting um, because I think because this evolutionary thing that's built into us, this notion that a deeper voice is the dominating voice. It's something that kind of developed in our species because it's a size bluff. If a if you know a big cello or 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 bass, acoustic bass has a big body for a reason, it's to resonate those lower notes and a violin is small to pick up the higher registers. So we actually deepen our voice in order to sound threatening and domineering and like a winning kind of politician. But like, like so much else about our evolved qualities as a species, as a naked ape, these things are also contingent on culture. They're contingent on learning. We can change and we do change. And we watched, uh, you know, in the midterm elections when so many women won a while back, you know, we, we've watched, uh, I think, a change in how we perceive women's voices as voices of power. I mean, I, I mean, it sounds like a cliche or like I'm, I'm, being a Pollyanna, but I absolutely believe it's true. Uh, you know, we, we can hear a higher register now, and we don't at all think anything like, oh, that person's not worthy of holding power. So a long answer to your question, but I think, you know, so many of the women's voices we're hearing now are just exciting and, and it's fabulous. Well, John, there are so many fascinating topics that you cover in your book. We could talk about this stuff for a long time time, but unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? No, except to say thank you for asking questions that um, nobody else asked, and that I feel like brought out <laughs> answers that were, were things I wanted to say, and I felt like I hadn't quite yet had a chance to. So thank you. Yeah, it was our pleasure. Thank you so much. And after the break, it's time for some wordplay. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. And this time we're joined by a very special guest who has agreed to be our victim for a wordplay quiz. Please welcome Chris Malanfi, Billboard chart analyst extraordinaire. He hosts the Hit Parade podcast for Slate, in addition to writing his long-running series, Why Is This Song Number One? Welcome, Chris. Hi, Ben. Hi, Nicole. Good to be here. I'm so excited. We're both huge fans of Hit Parade. In fact, I haven't said this before, but I subscribed to Slate Plus 
before we started Spectacular Vernacular specifically because of Hit Parade the Bridge. (laughs) That warms my heart. Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming episode? Yes, uh, working on it right now. It's our October episode, and it's going to be about the history of pop punk and emo, which are kind of twin forces that have risen in both rock music and, frankly, pop music uh, during the 21st century. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the heritage of straight-up punk dating back to the 70s, and even a little further back than that, and uh, how these two sort of bastard forms uh, wound up being some of the longest-lasting and most influential, and you can hear it on the radio this year in 2021, whether it's Olivia Rodrigo or Machine Gun Kelly or even Lil Nas X, the sound of pop punk and or emo is uh, kind of controlling everything right now. So go figure. Uh, and so that's what uh, the next episode is going to be about. I'm so excited about this emo pop punk episode. I graduated high school in 2006, which was oh, an excellent moment. <laughs> ground zero. That is, it's not ground zero, actually, of course, because emo dates back earlier. But like the wave of bands that came out of, you know, the Fueled by Ramen, you know, label and Fall I saw, yeah, I saw Motion City soundtrack three times. I cried to Dashboard Confessional for like a solid eight years. Like, this is my life. So I can't wait for the episode. What's your Dashboard jam? Vindicated, weirdly. (laughs) Vindicated. Interesting. Okay. Well, Chris, since you're going to be talking about emo on your next episode, we thought we would use that as the theme for the wordplay quiz we're giving you. Oh, heavens. So the theme for the quiz is finding your inner emo. Okay. So the way, the way this works is we'll give you a clue for the title of a song or an album that has the letters E-M-O, spelled consecutively, somewhere hidden inside of it. And uh, since you're such a chart geek, we are also going to give you all the relevant billboard information to help you figure it out. And we'll also give you extra hints if you need them. But I have a feeling you probably won't need too many hints. All right. Fingers crossed. Okay. So let's start with an old song that has emo hidden in it. The song is from 1931. So it predates the Billboard Hot 100 chart that you explore on Hit Parade. But chart historians say it was the top-selling song of 1931, selling over a million copies. And amazingly enough, the artist lived long enough to record a disco version of the song in 1978, which reached number 91 on the Billboard R&B chart. Would you like a hint? (laughs) I would really like a hint because I'm already stumped. The artist also performed the song in the 1980 movie The Blues Brothers. Oh. Okay, so I'm thinking it's Cab Calloway, maybe? And let me think. Would Minnie the Moocher be the right answer? Amazing. Yes, yeah. that is okay. correct. Here's the story about Minnie the Moocher. She was So, yeah, Minnie the Moocher has EMO in it. It's kind of straddling the Moocher is EMO. Okay, I wasn't sure if the the in between Mini and Moocher, you know, ruined it. But (laughs) if that works for you guys, it works for me. And hey, you got got it. You got it. Okay, now you now you now you know how this works. Okay, so next up, we've got a title that's been used for a couple of famous but unrelated songs. In 1956, a song with this title became one of the earliest rhythm and blues songs to make the Billboard pop charts. It peaked at number five on the pre Hot 100 jukebox chart. 
and also hit number one on the R&B bestsellers chart. A song with the same title came out in 1983 as a 12-inch single. That song did not make the Hot 100, but a cover version in a different style hit number 56 in 1998. All right, so the 12-inch single was what gave it to me because it's a well-known factoid that reportedly, and this is a little murky, uh, the best-selling 12-inch single of all time on Factory Records is uh, the epic single by uh, New Order. Uh, right after they became New Order, this flip from Joy Division to New Order, and that would be Blue Monday. There you go. Absolutely. That is correct. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's supposedly the best-selling 12-inch of all time. I'm not going to question that factoid. But uh, do you also recall the group that uh, covered Blue Monday, the New Order version, not the Fats Domino version? Um, right. In, uh, in 1998, uh, do you recall yes, that one? Theirs is the only version, I believe, that made a major Billboard chart. Uh, I think it made the Modern Rock chart and possibly even the lower rungs of the Hot 100. That would be by Orgy. Yes, absolutely. How does it feel to treat me like you do? Uh, maybe not quite uh, an emo band, more, more of an industrial. I think they call themselves death pop. <laughs> Bordering yeah. on new metal. <laughs> they were bordering on new metal, but but with a lot of makeup. It's weird. They tried the goth look crossed with new metal. It was very strange. They Late were, 90s they were, were a weird moment. <laughs> yeah, they were a big thing for all of five minutes. My other favorite detail about uh, the original, uh, not, not Fats Domino, but uh, New Order Blue Monday, is that... Uh, Factory Records lost money on every 12-inch they sold because the sleeve, I think by Peter Saville, if I'm not mistaken, is so beautiful and so expensive to produce that every time they sold a single in the neighborhood of, you know, three to five bucks, they were losing money because the single took the, cost them five or six bucks to make. So, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> great factoid. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's all chronicled in the the movie about Tony Wilson, uh, 24-Hour Party People. If you, I love that movie. That's great. It's a great movie, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's try an album title. This 2009 album was actually a reissue of the artist's debut album from the previous year with a title that's one word longer than the original. The expanded album contains some new songs, including three that did very well on the Billboard singles chart, all reaching the top five. Okay. This comes from that period at the end of the aughts and the early 10s where they would take an EP that was really a standalone album in its own right and tack it on to an album to get more life out of the original album. And I think in this case, we're talking about Lady Gaga, who had hits with Poker Face and uh, Just Dance off of her debut album, The Fame. And the EP that was tacked on was called The Fame Monster. There you go. Yeah, The Fame Monster. So as you mentioned, it was a reissue of The Fame, and it included singles like Bad Romance, Telephone, and Alejandro. That's my personal favorite. Um, and <laughs> Gaga's fans are known as Little Monsters, which also has emo hidden inside of it. Oh my goodness, I, that never even occurred to me. There's emo hiding all over the place, it turns out. Weirdly... My favorite factoid about uh, the Fame Monster is it was the first time I think Gaga was nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys, not for the Fame, but for the Fame Monster. 
And The Fame Monster is actually by itself my favorite Lady Gaga album. It's just packed with hits. It's only it's like eight songs, but it's like all killer, no filler. I don't think there's a dud in the bunch. It's even got her Elton John duet in it, which is actually pretty great. <laughs> She's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got one more album title for you with emo hidden inside it. This album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 in 2016, going on to sell two and a half million copies worldwide. The album included five singles, the most popular of which hit number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. Hmm. I may need a little more than that because so many albums debut at number one, including in 2016. Right. Um, okay, yeah, well... Can, can I get a tiny bit more? Well, um, the title was inspired by a saying by the grandmother of the artist's spouse... Uh, who wow. could be heard at the end of one of the album's songs? I'm tr- I'm picturing I'm picturing 2016 albums, and all that's jumping to mind is Kanye West's "The Life of Pablo" and Drake's "Views." It might help you that this is uh, possibly an album about infidelity by one famous person to another famous person. It's it's a great breakup now and reconciliation th- album. Now you're making me think of Drake's, uh, excuse me, of um, Usher's Confessions, which doesn't help. And it's not 25 by Adele. That's 2015. I don't know. There I, was a I thing seen... in the elevator. <laughs> oh, that. Oh, my God. How, how could I forget? And it's my favorite album of 2016. Now I'm really embarrassed. The answer is Lemonade by Beyonce. There you go. Yes. And the, the title Lemonade was inspired by Jay-Z's grandmother, Hattie White, uh, saying, I was served lemons, but I made lemonade, which was included on the on the outro to the song Freedom. I had my ups and downs, but I always find the inner strength to pull myself up. I was served lemons, but I made lemonade. And I'm sure, of course, you know the single from the album that hit number 10 was... Formation. There you go. Which is now a painful memory for me because I, I missed that in a recent pub trivia quiz with my family. So uh, I, I guess that the best video of all time, according to Rolling Stone, was not Formation, which is what I should have guessed, but uh, Single Ladies, which frankly I like better as a video. But um, go figure. And and I missed Beyonce again. Beyonce is just stumping me left and right this month. <laughs> yeah, and you just spent a lot of time talking about Beyonce and Jay-Z on a recent episode of Hit Parade, the Say My Name, Say My Name edition um, about what happens when rappers start singing and singers start rapping. <laughs> I did, yeah. No, that I, you'd think I'd have that on the brain, but I think because I also covered Kanye and Drake, they jumped to the front of my brain this time. So go figure. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This has been a real blast. And we will be checking out your emo slash pop punk episode of Hit Parade when it comes out on... October 15th, is that right? That's that's the scheduled date. <laughs> let's let's hope it, we've got it out that date, but that is when we're putting it out. Can't wait. I'm going to get my black fingernails, get my bangs side swoop going. You might want to do email. a preliminary visit to Hot Topic. Just yeah, yeah. get it done now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Chris. So Chris figured out those titles that have emo hidden in them, but now we have a challenge for all of our listeners out there. We're looking for a song title that hides emo, E-M-O, not once, but twice in its title. It's a disco song that reached number four on the Hot 100 in 1976, and it became one of the most popular songs of the disco era. And in 1999, 
the song got a new boost when it was sampled on a one-hit wonder that hit number nine on the singles chart. And here is that sample. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who'll get a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, we'll get you a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. So once again, we're looking for a 1976 disco hit that has emo hidden in its title twice. Please send your answer to spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line by midnight Eastern time on October 20th. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the contest from our September 28th episode. Jeffrey Grossman of Redmond, Washington figured out that a sailor's word for yes is I. A horror movie franchise is scream. And if you put those together, you get a cool treat, ice cream. So congratulations, Jeffrey. Thanks to Chris Malamfi for joining us. And listeners, he's too humble to mention it, but I want you to know that Ben had his first solo crossword puzzle in the Wall Street Journal on October 6th. So go check out that puzzle. We'll put the link to it in the show notes. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, and uh, Hip Parade the Bridge. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. And thanks again to John Colapinto for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. June Thomas is senior managing producer. And Gabriel Roth is editorial director for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.